space, no one can hear you scream, but you can listen to the Jodcast with Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien, Elaine Barrett, and Stuart Lowe. The Jodcast, August Extra issue. Hello and welcome to the August Extra edition of the Jodcast. I'm Stuart Lowe, and joining me this time is Ian Morrison. Hi, Ian. Yes, and hi, everybody. Um, you've been away in China and then just back. I am. It's a very we'll... exciting trip. We'll come to that a bit later on. Yes, we will. So, coming up on this issue, we bring you sounds from space. We hear about a behind-the-scenes tour of NASA Space Center in Houston. But first, let's start with the feedback from the website at www.jodcast.net. So, Ian, you've got the first one. Well, the first one comes from Doug V. And he asks, what happened to the July Extra? Well, the answer is very simple. The guys that do it were all on holiday or away. So I'm afraid that was one we missed out. But of course, this is the August one. So he did say, will there be one in August? The answer obviously is yes. Okay, next we have Phil Hill. He wrote in to say that he wanted to review us on iTunes, but couldn't find out where to do that. Now, if I remember rightly, I don't have iTunes in front of me, but you, if you find the Jodcast show page on the, on iTunes, and then there should be a link to review this podcast. So if you click on that, you should be able to review us. And just a note on that, iTunes have recently added a whole load of new countries to their iTunes stores, which makes it harder for us to go and check all the iTunes reviews. So if you do review us on iTunes, please go to our website and send us a copy of your review as well, just so we can see what you wrote about us. Next up, we have an email from Isabella Skizyezhevska, Gray, and I hopefully I pronounced that vaguely correctly. Um, she said that she just wanted to let us know how much she enjoys the Jodcast and keep up the good work. Okay, Ian, you have another one. Yes, this one comes from Martinia Tolsmer from the Netherlands. I hope I got that right. He or she has taken up an interest in astrophotography and made a few photographs of Jupiter and its moons, but couldn't find any useful sites for the post-processing in a photo editor. And um, she, he or she is using GIMP and Linux. Now, do we have any tips? Well, there are some useful programs uh, there's a program called Registax, which I believe you can run under a Windows emulator, which runs yeah. under Linux. If people use Wine on, on Linux, they'll be able to run Windows software. And the idea of Registax is very nice. Y you can combine lots of exposures and smooth out the noise and, and get it very nicely aligned. Um, most people use it with little videos taken perhaps with a camera these days, many can, but often with a webcam. Like so would that just be a standard webcam that you could buy in the shops? Well, the Philips Toucan Pro 2 is one that was being used by a lot of us, and you can buy that with a little adapter that fits into the eyepiece of a telescope. I've just acquired uh, a sort of a more professional one from the imaging source, and they make a range of high-speed webcam images somewhere around the two to three hundred pound mark so right. i'm just beginning to use that um now once you've done your imaging in registax there's quite a bit you can do in registax but another very useful um program to have is adobe elements which can be got relatively cheaply for pcs uh, it's about sort of 60 70 pounds and that allows you to do a lot with the contrast and basically getting the image to look as nice as possible so there's plenty out there Although that only does work on Windows or a Mac as well. That's right. I'm sure you can get it running on a Mac. I mean, Macs are the computers for doing image processing, to be said. But I'm afraid I just use a Windows machine. Yeah. But the GIMP is a handy replacement if you can't get Adobe Elements to exactly. work. Exactly. Um, I did say 
taking lots of short exposures. The problem with long exposures is that the atmosphere tends to blur images. If you can take a very short exposure, let's say a twenty-fifth of a second or even less if you can, then you may well be lucky and during that brief period the atmosphere can be quite steady. So what one does with these webcams, you might take a thousand images and Registax actually goes through them and finds the sharpest so that you can actually make your final image just using those images that happen to be the best. And obviously it works better when the seeing's good, but it does mean you can actually get some fantastic images even when the atmosphere is rather turbulent. Mm. Great stuff. There's some great results coming out of that. Absolutely. So best of luck, uh, Machine. Okay, we also have a piece of feedback from Joe Jones, who's noticed that we've released a trailer for the video Jodcast, and he's, I think, slightly worried about the the possible shift of emphasis. Now, don't worry, listeners, we will continue the audio Jodcast as we are doing. The video will be extra, and will be slightly different because it's got to be a lot shorter, obviously, because it's a lot bigger file to download, so we're trying to keep them quite short. But they'll cover all sorts of topics from pulsars to quasars, and we'll even have an interview with our very own Sir Bernard Lovell as well. So there's things to look out for on the video feed. Well, that sounds very, very good indeed. Well, we've got one more from Mark Shaw from Manchester, and he's actually sent us a link to a lovely photograph of the partial eclipse of the sun on August the 1st taken through the clouds. It's actually a very dramatic picture, and uh, the bite of the moon on the side of the sun really looks very, very good indeed. Uh, as those that listened to the, the last issues might know, I was lucky enough to accompany a group to a place called Yiwu, uh, which is very close to the Mongolian border in the northwest of China, where it was reckoned that the probability of seeing totality was the highest along the whole eclipse track. Well, I'm not quite sure it turned out like that. Uh, we had a lot more cloud there than many other locations, including in, in, in Russia, where the prospects weren't good. Um, in fact, a cloud covered the sun just about three minutes before totality. Uh, luckily, the sun came out again about 30 seconds or so before totality. So we did see it all, although Mercury, which was visible immediately, did pop behind the little cloud, so we only saw it for a while, along with Venus. Um, I think on my photograph I've actually got a picture of Saturn as well. Um, if one goes to the night sky page for August, which is the one I do each month, with the section about the eclipse, obviously that's useless now because it's past, I will have a link to a sort of a web-based photo story, about 60 images there, of my little trip to China. It was a, a, a wonderful trip. We went to Beijing and looked at the Great Wall on perhaps the best day for clarity and uh, an atmosphere that Beijing's had for a long, long time and had some uh, great trips out in the Go Gobi Desert. So that was quite an exciting trip. If you're interested, go to Night Sky and just look under the highlights of the month about the eclipse. Well, I'm very jealous of your trip, Ian, although I did get to see a, a bit of a partial eclipse from here at Jodwell. Yes, I'm so glad that the, 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 the sun actually did appear for a bit. Um, it was a bit tender hooks for you, I know. Um, there is an eclipse crossing southern China um, next year, end of July, and I'm taking a group to Shanghai. Uh, we'll be on the, on the beach, not far from Shanghai, probably lots and lots and lots of people Prospects anywhere along the eclipse track next year are not really much more than about 50%, but we'll just keep our fingers crossed. Yep. Well, thank you, Mark Shaw, for that great picture. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. 
and it's a pity that we can't show it to you, but that's one of the limitations of the medium of audio podcasting. So to play to our strengths, we've asked Tim O'Brien to explore the sounds of the cosmos. Okay, right, thanks Stuart. Yeah, um, I mean it's an interesting thing, the idea of, of, of sounds from space. I mean, we're used to, of course we're used to observing the universe, so you know the vast majority of information we get from space is in the form of um, different bits of the electromagnetic spectrum, so all, all the way from radio waves to x-rays and you know our eyes just work a little bit in the middle there somewhere. Um, so the idea of sounds from space is a bit, is a bit, is a bit weird, and I think the one thing that I was reminded of when I first started thinking about this idea was was a, a film that I'm sure you've seen yourself, which is Alien. Uh, and if you can, if you go back and find the original posters for Alien, uh, you'll see that the tagline was "In space, no one can hear you scream." And that's because there's, there's a vacuum or near vacuum in that, space. That was the idea, yeah. So 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 what they were picking up on was the fact that actually sound waves need to travel through. You know, when they travel through the air, when I'm talking to you now. And, People are listening to this. The the molecules are banging together, and eventually that wave hits the eardrum and bangs on it, and that turns into a signal that the brain interprets as a sound. Um, and because there's very few, you know, the density of the of, of the medium in space is so low, you know, like one particle per cubic centimeter, typically. That's um, pretty low. Yeah, it's virtually a vacuum. Um, people sort of interpret that as there being no sound in space, or at least the alien filmmakers did. Um, <laughs> and in fact, of course, there are actually sound waves in space, because there are there is stuff there, it's just that the density of atoms is so low it'd basically be inaudible. So if you took your helmet off in your space suit... Yeah, which I don't advise any of our listeners to, to try. That's right, that's 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 the public information uh, announcement. <laughs> don't take your space helmet off. Uh, but if you tried and tried to listen, then it'd be basically inaudible, because you know, there's not enough atoms there to bounce off your eardrum particularly. But some bits of space are more dense though, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Um, I mean, you know, when you get closer into a star and stuff, and we'll see some examples of sound waves in this in this thing we're going to talk about now, actually. But uh, um, gen- often, what's done is, is 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 a thing called sonification, where we take take we could actually take electromagnetic signals, radio waves or whatever, mm-hmm. and turn them into a sound um, to sort of engage with them in a different way. You know, which yep. is, which is sort of interesting. So hopefully, like we do we'll when we turn that. them into pictures. Exactly. I mean, you know, all you're really doing when, you, when you're collecting stuff from space is, you, is you've got to get that information into your brain to let you think about it, to try and yep. understand what it means. And what we're used to doing is, is putting visual information into our brain. But there's no real reason why we shouldn't listen to signals or we shouldn't even smell signals, maybe. I don't know. That's making me think of the contact film with Jodie Foster with her headphones on listening to the VLA now. Jodie Foster was, yeah, that's exactly it. And of course, people don't sit at the VLA with their headphones no. on and neither do they make scratch and sniff radio maps. But, um, <laughs> but I've, got it, I've got it down as a little thing I might consider consider at some point in the future. Um, okay, so um, what I did a uh, little while ago, uh, last year sometime, I, 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 I took um, the output from the Lovell telescope here at Jodrell and, uh, and I recorded it onto, uh, basically we took the electrical signal that comes out with the receiver and you can put it through an amplifier and send it through a pair of speakers and mm. I recorded that. And this is what, if we sat there like Jodie Foster in, in contact with our headphones on and we listened to the signals from our radio telescopes, this, this is what we'd hear. Now, I'm sure you'll agree, and I'm sure the listeners will agree, that this is particularly interesting. 
it's it's riveting. <laughs> but now all our listeners who have sat there probably with their headphones on are reenacting the scene of Jodie Foster in contact, <laughs> listening to radio noise. Absolutely, this is this is what she was so interested in. Now, of course, the the thing about that is that uh, yeah, it's not interesting. Of course, radio astronomers don't sit there with headphones on listening to signals like that all the time. It is actually it was actually pointed at an interesting object. It was, that was that is a recording of the radio signal from Cass A, Cassiopeia A. There's, there's two big bright ones, actually. There's Cass A and Cygnus A, and Cass A is a supernova remnant. It just depends what frequency you're observing it as to which is strongest. Cass A is a supernova remnant. We think it exploded in about 1670. About 300 years ago. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so that's, those radio waves were, are being produced by electrons accelerated in the shock wave around that exploded star. Um, but there's not a lot of information in that signal other than its strength. So really what you're doing is measuring the strength of the radio signal at a certain point in the radio spectrum. And that's what radio astronomers would be interested so that's in. That's like the loudness of that sound. That's effectively the loudness, loudness of that sound. That's where the information is. But the rest of it's just noise, you know. It's not yeah. that interesting. It sounds very much like when you tune your radio out of the channels. Absolutely, yeah. So, so you know, that's why we don't typically listen to, radio, to, to, to signals from our telescopes. We'll hear some more unusual ones later. Um, now, uh, I've got a, a, a recording here that was made by uh, a guy called Don Gurnett, who's at the University of Iowa, and it's actually, um, we'll start sort of close to home and work our okay. way out into the universe, I think, uh, and we'll start with the Earth, and this is a recording um, of something called Whistler Waves, so I'll play that now. Okay, so what you heard there was a lot of whistling. It was. You agree? Yeah, I do. So there was a bit so, of a so, pew, pew sort of sound. So what are they? Okay, so basically what they are is that they're, they're actually waves in a plasma. So plasmas are charged, you know, charged particles. So, you know, when you get any, any atoms and you sort of rip some electrons off them, you end up with a mix of positively charged ions, the bit that are bit of the atom that's left behind when the electrons are ripped off and the electrons and that's often what stuff is in space uh, and even in even in our in our atmosphere and uh, above the earth so uh, at high altitudes so what happens is lightning strikes so when 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 a lightning charge you know shoots through the atmosphere mm. that that sets off a disturbance in this plasma and that plasma wave travels along the magnetic field lines of the earth out into space yeah. uh, and that then generates this uh, basically this radio emission that you can hear as these whistlers right so and the and the sort of the way in which the tone of that uh, note changes is telling you something about the way in which that wave propagates along that magnetic field travels along the they, magnetic they field they started quite high in yeah, in. and decay away. So, yeah. boom, boom is the sort of if I was to do a very particularly poor impression. <laughs> of it. So, so those those are Whistler waves. Um, here's a second example, a related thing. They're actually uh, picked up by spacecraft flying um, above the atmosphere. Now, these things are called proton whistlers. Now, what so you'll the previous hear, ones were with electrons. largely electrons. Right. Yeah, so they're largely uh, waves in the electrons. These are waves more in the proton. Uh, proton component of the plasma um, and actually they're sparked off by the whistlers so you basically get this sort of lightning strike down near the surface of the earth that sends this whistler this, the, the first sort of electron whistler wave up through the magnetic field and then you get a sort of proton wave that's that comes back down again we think down through the magnetic field 
And they sound quite different. And because of the fact that one is largely in electrons, the other is largely in protons, you get a difference in the in the tone. And you also get a difference in the way the tone changes. So what you're going to hear, what you should listen out for, is you'll hear whistlers. You'll hear the ones like we just heard, the boom, boom. But after a few of the stronger whistlers, you'll hear this sort of eerie, ghost-like proton whistler sort of kick in after it. So just try, just try and listen out for that. So the whistlers there sounded a bit like some kind of laser battle in, yeah. in a sci-fi movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, by the ghostly echoes. Yeah, I mean, those ghostly things are really good. You get the boo, 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 boo from the from the laser battles, the electron whistlers, and then you get the ooh sort of noise from the ghostly proton whistlers. It's great stuff. Um, okay, um, sticking uh, sticking to the earth. Um, here's uh, here's some recordings of meteors. Um, now, in fact, this, this, these recordings were made with, uh, so these are shooting stars, basically. Um, these recordings were made with a system, um, that we've got at Jodrell Bank, um, which was set up by a few, a few people there a few years ago. Megan included, um, and Eddie Blackhurst as well, as well as others. So what, what happens here is that, uh, if you can imagine this, uh, Spanish broadcasting station, or, you know, down, down in Spain there, send, send, sending out their signals, then normally you'd expect to get that in line of sight. You know, you'd have your aerial on your roof or something and you'd pick up that signal directly. And up here in Manchester, we're quite a long way out of line of sight. From Absolutely, Spain. we're not going to get line of sight to Spain. So the only way we'd normally expect to pick up that signal is if somehow it got reflected back off the ionosphere, the right. upper part of the atmosphere. And what happens here is that normally we wouldn't pick up the signal at all. But then when there's a shooting star and it sort of shoots through the atmosphere, it leaves this ionized trail of gas behind it. And the radio, the, the radio wave that's being sent out from the Spanish station can actually reflect back off that, off that trail. Right, so it gives us a, a mirror up in the ionosphere. Yeah, there's this echo coming back. So you're right, the meteor acts like a mirror in the ionosphere and we get this sort of echo, this reflection off this mirror. So what you'll hear in this recording that we made with the aerial that's set up at Jodrell, uh, you'll hear high-pitched noises in this recording that are basically the the echo of this 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 transmission coming back off the meteor trails. So these are actually the Leonid meteors. So that actually, you know, the thing we do with that sometimes is we have these meteor shower star passes at Jodrell where we hope that maybe the skies are clear and people will actually see the shooting stars. But of course, yep. if it's cloudy, which, you know, it's very rarely cloudy, of course, here, here, here in <laughs> Never in, in Cheshire, never. <laughs> um, but w- when it is, then we can still sort of see the meteors, if you like, through the clouds. Um, okay, moving out away from the Earth a bit, we get to a planet, and uh, Jupiter's a, a, a nice example of, of something that produces radio emission, which we can turn that radio emission into into sound and um and this is something called the the jovian chorus um and it's supposed to sound a bit like the dawn chorus you know all the birds and stuff twittering Mm. as as dawn approaches
So in fact, I, I mean, I think it sounds like the jungle, actually. So yeah, the it does sound more like the jungle than, yeah, than a dawn chorus in Yeah, that's right. So there's a few howling monkeys in there as well, <laughs> as well as the macaws and stuff. Um, so, you know, quite, quite interesting stuff. Here's, here's another, here's another uh, aspect of Jupiter's radio mission, and this is, you know, radio waves quite often are generated, you know, we see a lot of this idea of electrons and charged particles spiraling around magnetic fields producing radio waves, and here's, Here's the magnetic field of Jupiter, and these these are these are things called S bursts. Uh, this this comes from Dick Flagg at the uh, at the University of Florida. This recording, um, and uh, this is low low frequency radio emission, um, and it's coming from the magnetic poles of of Jupiter. Now this um, this recording this is real time, right? And it's a bit, you know, I don't know. It just sounds a lot, a lot of crackle and yeah, and it almost sounds like someone's tapping away on a table. Yeah. So there's sort of very, you know, you've seen a lot of variable strengths to the radio signals. You'd actually sometimes what you think is well, maybe there's a lot more information in that than we're managing to hear. Um, so what you can do is change the speed at which you listen to it. You can either slow down the signal or you could speed up the signal and then right. see what it sounds like because then, you, you know, you're then able Compress to... Compress the time or expand the yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. So, so here's speeded up by a factor of 128. Ooh, it sounds a, a lot more like the, the whistlers we had earlier. Absolutely. And it's because it's exactly the same thing. So it's the same physical thing that's happening in the, in the, in the sort of magnetic field around Jupiter, as, as happens in the magnetic field around the Earth. So why is it spread out a lot more in time? Well, I think it's basically to do with the magnetic field strength, you know, and the scale of Jupiter, which is different. So you can imagine that the, the same pulses might happen, but on different timescales. So, so, yeah, it's interesting. Um, okay, so heading out from Jupiter, let's get to Saturn, um, and uh, and the biggest moon of Saturn is called Titan. Thank you. So if you if you look at um, if you look at uh, Saturn through a telescope and you see the lovely rings, of course, you'll probably spot nearby it what looks like a very bright star somewhere fairly close to Saturn. And in fact, that is Titan. You know, it's, it is visible through a small telescope quite clearly. Currently, with the Huygens lander Saturnite surface. Absolutely. So that, so when when um, uh, when the Cassini uh, spacecraft went to went to Saturn uh, recently, um, it took this Huygens lander and it dropped it uh, through the through the atmosphere and it went down through the atmosphere of Titan and uh, and landed on the surface of Titan and brought back the first pictures from the, from from the surface of Titan there. And it's you know Titan's interesting because it's got this sort of thick soupy atmosphere and we think maybe something like the same sort of chemical composition as the Earth's atmosphere might have been you know uh, a long long time ago towards the beginning of the solar system. So um, what this recording is is it's actually um, it's actually a recording of the radar signal um, that was being used by the Huygens lander to work out how far above the surface it was. Right. So if you can imagine, if you're sort of floating down on your parachutes, you want to know how far it is to go, and the scientists back on Earth want to sort of have this telemetry that, that measures what the spacecraft was doing. They send out this radio p- ping, and the ping uh, comes back from the surface. Of, so it's just of, like a submarine. Exactly. Yeah, it's a sonar type uh, type arrangement, um, but in this case with with radar with radar radio waves. Yeah. So um, 
So basically, you're sort of pinging this thing back. And what you should happen, of course, is that as you get closer and closer to the surface, the time between successive pings gets shorter and shorter as mm. you get close to the surface. So we'll listen to that. The first part of the of the sequence is actually there's something to do with the radar system locking onto the signal. So there's some sort of funny little blips and wiggles at the beginning. And then you'll hear this sort of high-pitched tone. And the tone will increase as the spacecraft approaches the surface because the pings are getting closer and closer together. So this is it locking on. So it's, it's trying to get the it's trying to get the lock on the returning signal. It'll kick in in a minute, in a few seconds. yourself for impact. And it has a camera on board swinging around taking pictures as it was, as it was going down. You might be starting to get worried now. Yep. Here comes the ground. <laughs> so that, 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 was it, that was it landed. So that was quite a... Quite a shock. Quite a yep. jolt to the system. Okay, so now we've we've landed nicely on Titan. Let's move out from the planets. Yep, move to a star. So the nearest star is the Sun. Not Proxima Centauri. I'm sure you know that. It's <laughs> a trick question. It's a trick. <laughs> question, Trying to catch me course. out there. Um, so yeah, b- back to the Sun. Um, so um, I mean, you might might be aware the Sun. The Sun effectively rings like a bell. I mean, basically, the sound waves passing through the Sun, causing it to vibrate all the time. Um, so here we've got a recording. Uh, it's actually made again. It's it's made with uh, made with data from the uh, uh, Mickelson Doppler imager. It's called, which is on board the Soho spacecraft. So what this is doing is it's taking, it's looking at the sun, and it's measuring the spectrum of light from the sun, and it's measuring the Doppler shift in that spectrum. So as bits of the sun come towards us, and they would be blue shifted, and as bits of the sun go away from us, the 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 light would be red shifted. So this is just like a police car coming towards you away from you. The pitch gets shifted. Absolutely. Down up. Yeah. So if you listen to a car driving past as it's you get this sort of sort of sound. Yeah. So as it's coming towards you, they get a high pitch. As it goes away, you get a low pitch. So you can do this so you can take the data from the sort of images of the sun being produced, take that Doppler shift measurement and turn that Doppler shift measurement into a sound. Right. And that's that's what's been done to produce these um, this recording. And in fact, in this case, like we said earlier, sometimes you get more information if you speed things up or slow things down. This particular thing has actually had to be speeded up by a factor 42,000. That's quite a lot. <laughs> to, to hear something in the, in the signal. So this is a lovely humming sound. It's the sound of the sun just humming, you know, just sort of you know, quite just vibrating. It is quite relaxing. Just listen to the sun. But this is 42,000 times faster than it would be. Yeah, yeah, because the sun's so big, you know, the, the, the sound waves would be much longer, so you, you wouldn't hear those sort of those vibrations unless you speeded them up. There's a huge range of, of, of sound waves, however, on the sun, and uh, 
This is just one example. And in fact, some some people use those sound waves to to probe into the sun, don't they? Yeah, and it's it's, it's called helioseismology. So uh, you know, helio as in sun, helios. Yep. And seismology, just like with earthquakes, where you know an earthquake goes off somewhere on the earth, and the sound waves travel through the rock and right through the earth. And you can put seismometers, things that detect those waves at different points on the earth, and you can study the interior of the earth by looking at the time at which you detect these signals from different parts of the earth. Mm. And you do the same with the sun. It's a it's a really neat way of, of studying the interior structure which would otherwise be uh, invisible to us here's another one related to the sun um, and this one's to do with the solar wind so we know the sun's got this wind of particles that blows away from the sun all the time energetic particles um, and this is um, uh, two spacecraft called the helios spacecraft um, germany german u.s collaboration um, and these, this is again data from particles hitting the spacecraft in the solar wind, and the the sort of changing energy of those particles and the number of particles that hit has been turned into a sound for us to sort of interact with the data in a different way. generation might say that that sounds a little bit like the theme tune to the magic roundabout <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know what people were on when they made that but it was, uh, <laughs> it's uh, yeah it's 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 interesting stuff because it's basically um it's basically those sort of tones you can get these tones because in a you know for in this case it's the energy spectrum of the particles so you might imagine that high energy particles you could represent by high pitch sounds and low energy particles you could represent by low pitch sounds and then you can take that information that's that's embedded in the energy of the particles and turn it into an interesting thing to listen to. So, and it's actually quite, you know, it's not, you know, it's interesting in itself. It's a different way of it, but actually, I think it's scientifically useful as well sometimes because you can actually sometimes hear, you know, for example, a little high energy particle might arrive. You might not notice it in a huge slew of data that you're looking at visually on a graph, but if you listen to it audibly, you suddenly hear this high pitched tone. It stands out quite markedly from the rest of it. So it's not, you know, it's it's got scientific value as well, actually. And in a sense, that was a real sound, because it was the transmission of energy by particles hitting yeah, the spacecraft. Absolutely, yeah, it's similar to a sound wave in that sense. Yeah, that's right, rather than the, the sort of electromagnetic wave conversion that we've done. Um, here's something that I was involved with uh, a couple of years ago. I worked with a, a few uh, artists in a group called Flow Motion, uh, called Anna, Anna Peaver and Eddie George. And they sort of approached me with some data they'd got from uh, uh, from uh, Phil Utley at Southampton University, which was X-ray observations of Cygnus X1. Now, Cygnus X1 is a binary star system that we believe has a black hole in it, and material sort of falls from the other star into into the black hole. And as it falls towards it, you get a conversion of gravitational energy to it heats the material, and you can get that material gets very hot, and it can produce X-rays. Um, so these these are basically X-rays observed with a satellite called the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer, uh, and what they wanted to do was make a, a sort of work of art, a sound piece, and associated visuals, working with with those data. And so I took the X-ray data and I turned them into a sound for them. Um, so this is this is sort of my interpretation of, of of materials. It falls into a black hole, never to be seen again.
got a really good beat, but what exactly is that telling us? Yeah, so the so the beat, which is one of the most interesting things about it, is actually uh, because the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer measures um, very rapidly. It samples the, the X-ray brightness many times a second, actually, right. or in this case, I think it's about 20 times a second, in fact. So what that beat that you hear is effectively separate measurements of the X-ray brightness. I've slowed right. it down a little, so it's sort of dum 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 is us measuring the X-ray brightness. And then all I've done is a very simple thing where we I took the X-ray brightness and said if it's if it's brighter, I'll make it a higher pitch sound. If it's fainter, I'll make it a lower pitch sound. And right. then I just turn that into a sound. And it's just a sort of different way of looking at the data rather than simply looking at a graph of it. Mm. Now I'm going to remind you of what a typical radio signal recorded with a Lovell telescope is like. Pretty boring, I think we agreed. Um, yep. However, we can imagine moving our telescope off Casse, the exciting supernova remnant that produces the rather boring sounds, pointing at another direction in the sky, and this is what we hear. Again, uh, a recording made with Louisville Telescope. So I think you probably agree that, that you know if you if you did that and you've been used to hearing the hiss, the static at the beginning, and then you heard that you, it's suddenly something quite interesting. Yeah, your headphones might fall off, you'd fall out of your chair, you'd be a bit shocked. And in fact, the first astronomers that that picked up those sorts of signals, it was actually um, Jocelyn Bell working at Cambridge University in 1967. Who we talked to last year on the podcast. That's right, um, and it was the 40th anniversary of 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 her discovery made in 1967 which are these of these objects called pulsars and the pulse obviously comes because these things pulse 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 when of course when she first picked them up they they were really didn't know what had any idea what these things were they thought they might even be alien signals and so they named the first one lgm1 little green man one <laughs> um so we now know that they're uh, rotating neutron stars they've got very strong magnetic fields these neutron stars are maybe uh, the size of a city 20 kilometers across but the mass of the sun so it's like taking the sun and compressing it down to the size of a city when you do that it spins faster because it conserves angular momentum um, and because they've got strong magnetic fields you get radiation coming off the magnetic north and south poles that as the star spins sweeps past our line of sight and you get a lighthouse effect, so you get this flash of radio waves every time the right. stars... every time the pole comes past us. That's right. So uh, we can turn that into a sound, that radio wave again. We can just take that electrical signal, play it through an amplifier and a pair of speakers, and you'd hear, you hear that thud, thud, thud. So that that thudding sound, was that was the rotation period of the star, about 0.7 seconds, the neutron star in that case. What was the pulsar that we were listening to? Um, that's a pulsar with the exciting name of B0329 plus 54, I think. Wow. Okay. Well, a telephone number name. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's it's a uh, it's coordinates. So the 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 zero three two nine is it's a right ascension of three hours and twenty nine minutes, and the plus fifty four is its declination of plus fifty four degrees. So that was you know that's maybe a typical pulsar spinning once every second or so. Um, this is a quite an exciting one. I like this one. This sounds like somebody uh, somebody on the bongos who's drunk too much coffee. So what's the the period of the the so, the, of the pulsar. so the period of the pulsar in this case, this is the Vela pulsar, it's at the centre of the Vela supernova remnant, and the period of the pulsar is 89 milliseconds, so it's going round about 11 times a second. Right. So the, so the, the sounds are the same, the, 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 each pulse is not the same strength as the previous pulse, there's a, there's a lot yep. of syncopation, right? Yep. So it's going up and down, so So in fact, you know, with a pulsar, you find out when you compare one pulse to the last pulse, 
um, they don't actually look the same. You know, the brightness effectively is going up and right. down, is changing. Um, so you get that really lovely sort of syncopated beat that you heard in, in the Vela Pulse that. If you take sort of the average of 100 pulses and compare that to the average of another 100 pulses, then they look very similar. But from one pulse to the next, there is, there is a lot of variation. Right. Um, here's the crab pulsar. So the crab pulsar is at the centre of the uh, of the crab nebula, as you might imagine. So it's a, a star which exploded in 1054 AD. That's right, and it's seen by Chinese astronomers. So as a, as a naked eye, as a star in the in the daytime sky. So it was so bright. Point your telescope there. Now you see that lovely optical view of the of the crab this nebula. Is M1. M1. Yeah, yeah. First first one in the first object in the Messier catalogue. Um, but deep in the heart of it is actually the remnant neutron star, the centre of the star that exploded, collapses in on itself to make a pulsar. And this, this is a recording of that pulsar rotating uh, about 30 times a second. So this one sounds a bit like a road drill. Okay, so, you know, perhaps getting slightly harder to listen to, actually. It almost starting to get a bit painful. They're all blending into, into each other as yeah, well, the, the pulses yeah. almost. Yeah, that's right. So you, you get a thud, 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 but 30, 30 thuds a second. Um, and this next, next one, the last, the, the last individual pulsar we'll listen to is, is uh, rejoices in the name of uh, B1937 plus 21. Um, this is actually the second fastest pulsar we know. So a few years ago, we did discover a, a faster one. Um, Spins about 10% faster. This one, amazingly enough, remember this is a star, weighs about as much as the sun, about the size of a city, 20 kilometers across. This star spins 642 times a second. That's very fast. That is very fast. What, what, what speed is the surface going at? Um, it's about a seventh the speed of light. So, um. That's very fast. Yeah. So in fact, you know, obviously we imagine, and it took a long time before we found a pulsar even going slightly faster than this one. We imagine there must be some limit at the speed at which they'd spin because mm. they might they'd pull themselves apart, basically. Yep. So, you know, the material, it's telling you something about the structure of a pulse, of a neutron star, as looking at how, how fast they can spin. Um, let me just play you that. So I think I think you'll agree that this is this is not something you're going to listen to for any great length of time. But um, bit no, painful, thank goodness actually. for that. So, so it's, it's basically a, a note of 642 hertz uh, is what you're listening to there. So that's that. So those pulsars that spin that fast um, are spun up in binary systems. We think stuff's stuff's dumped onto them from a neighbouring star that adds angular momentum and spins the star faster. Right. So that's how it gets, that's gets how it gets to be speed. that fast. That's right. Um, now that note, that 642 hertz note, you know, you can imagine. Okay, that's interesting. It's a note, you know, like one might play on an instrument. Hmm. And you know, you could take a set of pulsars, all spinning at different speeds. They effectively give you all different notes, and you've got. A musical instrument because you can play those pulsars perhaps and hear lots of different tones together. Yeah. Um, and what we've done actually, uh, Michael Kramer's uh, produced a, a nice uh, recording of an ensemble of pulsars in a globular cluster. Um, a globular cluster in this case called 47 Tucani. So a globular cluster is a, a big group of stars. Yeah, that's right. So these are these sort of the, the, the globular, the spherical dis- uh, bodies of stars, groups of stars. Um, 
several million stars. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. They're one of the best things to look at through a telescope. You look through a small telescope, what are you going to look at? The moon? Yeah. Jupiter? <laughs> yeah. Saturn? Yeah. Globular cluster? Tick. Yes. You want to look at a globular cluster. So, yeah, 47 Tuck is, uh, is a globular cluster in the southern sky. Um, and we've basically found, um, 20 or 30, uh, fast spinning so-called millisecond pulsars because they, they, they spin with periods of several milliseconds, tens of milliseconds. Um, and this is a, this is a sort of recording of a, of a fly through this, this globular cluster. So as you as you fly through, um, what you heard was, you know, you hear all the pulsars together, if you like, from a distance. And then as you fly through the middle of the globular cluster, you can sort of whiz past one pulsar after another, and you start to hear one pulsar well, louder. That gets louder as you get closer. Yeah, and they all play at sort of different notes. And those are the real, you know, those are the real sort of uh, notes that each of those pulsars have. Mm. Very soothing sounds. <laughs> it's much nicer than B-1937. It's, it's, not, it's not bad, that's true. Okay. Um, most recently on pulsars, um, I'm sure we've talked about this a number of times on the Jodcast. We, we um, astronomers here at Jodrell discovered a thing called the double pulsar, um, and the double pulsar is uh, two two pulsars orbiting one another, um, which is the first time anybody's ever found such a thing. Um, so you know we'd heard of one pulsar going round another. Uh, neutron star before, but these are two pulsars, so it's two clocks orbiting in a strong gravitational field, best ever test of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Um, recently, the most recent um, result from the from the double pulsar was uh, to look at the eclipses, because it turns out one pulsar passes in front of the other, and when that happens, the magnetic field of that pulsar effectively blocks the signal being received from the other pulsar, so you get a real, uh, a real eclipse. So we, there's a Basically, a recording of that eclipsing uh, happening, and, and we'll just we'll just listen to that. So what you hear is the tone of the pulsar before it goes into an eclipse, and then there's the spinning magnetosphere, the region with the magnetic field around the other pulsar that starts to block it. So you start to hear it drop out. Basically, as the other star spins, it blocks it more and more and more. So the the mag- magnetosphere around this pulsar is is not spherical. It's in no. some kind of it's a sort of donut d- shape. Yeah, that's right. It's a sort of donut shape, and as it spins, that donut sort of passes in front of the star and then reveals it again, and then pass then blocks it and then reveals it again. And as the stars are more closely lined up, then it disappears for a long period of time, and then it starts to appear again out the other side. So if our listeners were to, to get a, a skewer and stick it through a donut, yeah, across the diameter, yeah, and then to spin the donut on the skewer, that's the one. in front of a light, they would see the, the light coming in and out. That's, that's exactly what it's like. And in fact, there's a, there's a lovely movie of it that's been produced um, that we'll link to from the, from the website. Okay, right. I think we've um, we've sort of got to. We've done a lot quite of stars. We've universe. got quite far out of the universe. Let's go back to the beginning of the universe and let's think about the Big Bang. Um, now, now, in fact, um, if you were to if you were to listen to the if you were to listen to the Big Bang uh, signal um, just 
directly, it would just sound like hiss. So it would be very much like that hiss that I recorded coming from Cass Air. Yeah, because it's fairly uniform across the whole sky. So. Yeah, that's right. So, it's, so it would be sort of static. It's just a hiss. There's a very interesting um, sound that was made uh, a little while ago by Mark Whittle, though, at the University of Virginia, which is that he took sort of models of the, of the way in which the universe would have behaved as it expanded over its first million years. And... There would be, there would have been sound waves that pass backwards and forwards, you know, through that material, uh, as the universe expands. And he's basically taken that information, our physical understanding of how that should work, and he's turned those sound waves into a real sound. So it's as if you list, this is as if you're listening to the first million years of, of the history of the universe, and it's the sort of information that's imprinted in the, in the cosmic microwave background radiation. Mm. The sort of CMB maps of the, of the sky. That obviously you know you know quite a lot about working on Planck. Yep. So here's here's his sound. So remember the first million years of the universe. That was it. <laughs> a million it's, years in a few seconds. It sounded like something being shot out of a cannon at the beginning. Yeah, um, yeah. I think, I think the um, I think the initial thing is basically you can imagine the scale of the universe is increasing, so there's this sort of decaying frequency goes on. Um, if if you if your listeners are interested in the details of of that whole process and exactly what all these things represent, I think they should. Uh, visit Mark's website, which we'll link to from the Jodcast website, because there's a, he's got some, a great amount of detail as what the background astronomy is and the science and how he actually came up with that, with those particular sounds. Mm. So it's worth reading if, if you're interested in more. Um, and I think just to, uh, perhaps just to finish, it's probably worth, uh, now we're talking about the Big Bang, it's probably worth reminding people that, um, that actually if you, uh, if you tune your TV set, off station, so get to a blank channel on your TV set. Which is getting harder to do with digital TVs, but. That's true. So, you know, on the, on your normal TV where you've got these numbered channels, if you find one of those numbered channels that's not got a TV signal in it, you're just going to see static on the screen, and you could turn the volume up on the TV and you'll get this hiss. It's worth noting that a few percent of that static, a few percent of the, the radio signal that's coming, that's arriving at your aerial and coming down into your TV set, um, is actually from the Big Bang. It's radio waves that it's amazing produced, to think of that. Yeah, produced 300,000 years after the after the the Big Bang itself. At the time, the cosmic microwave background radiation was was produced. It was the universe was a temperature of about 3,000 degrees. Um, it, it would have been that light would have been visible. Would have been a sort of dull orangey red color. So the universe would have sort of glowed orangey red because anything at 3,000 degrees would would be that sort of color. You know, even yep. like Betelgeuse or something, the red giant. Um, and then as the universe has expanded by about a factor of thousand since then, it's now down at about three Kelvin. And anything that's at a temperature of about three Kelvin would, would radiate in the radio part of the spectrum down in the sort of microwave end. And, and that's basically where your TV signals tuned to, your TV is tuned to pick up signals of that frequency. So yeah, a few, few percent of that static is, is truly really radio waves that set off, um, just after the Big Bang. That's amazing. Well, Tim, thank you very much for taking us on a sound tour of the universe and my only advice now is for all our listeners to go home and tune their TV in between the channels and watch the microwave background. And listen to this. There we are. That's the sound of the cosmic microwave background there. Okay, well, from the distant universe, and you certainly can't get 
any further back in time <laughs> or further away than the sounds from the cosmic microwave background. We're sort of looking back about 13.7 billion years. So let's come back down to Earth. And one great aspect of the work of the U.S. Space Agency, NASA, uh, not just with the, the fact that all the images taken by all their spacecraft can be freely used by anybody, and I'll tell you, if you try to make a book, that is a, a, an inestimable help. They also do a great job communicating its science to the public in, in various visitor centers at their various facilities. Um, they really are good, and for example... If you go to Florida, you've got a chance to see a Saturn V in close-up. That's pretty awesome. I've actually seen it from a little way away. It still looked pretty good from there. And what's very nice is that a month or so ago, uh, one of our Jogcast listeners, Elaine Barrett, took a very special tour around NASA's Space Center in Houston, and she sent us this report. Hello, my name is Elaine Barrett, and back on the 2nd of July, I went on one of NASA's Level 9 VIP Tours. They cost $80 a person, but believe me, folks, it is more than worth every penny. Only 12 people a day can go on this tour, which means that you have to book in advance. But I tell you, we saw things on that tour that 99% of the tourists who go to NASA in Houston never see because only the Level 9 Tour goes to those places. It was mind-blowing, and I certainly recommend it to any who would ever want to go to Houston and see NASA, which is, if you're into outer space, pretty much everybody. Now, I'm going to just talk about some of the things I saw there and what our guide told us. Believe me, there was a lot, since our tour guide knew everything. The tour started out in Building 1 near the back. For those of you who haven't been to NASA, that's pretty much the main tourist welcome center and kitty area. There's a theater there that gives presentations, gift shops, some models, and plenty of really cool things for kids to climb on and interact with, jungle gym style. They also have a full-size model of a shuttle cockpit and some of the working areas which you get to look through. It's amazing how little space they actually have inside there. They have switches everywhere. I mean, covering every available surface. Little switches. I don't know how they keep them all straight. There's also a cafeteria there and a place where all the different tram tours leave. We had to sign in at the information desk and get our little VIP badges. The one time I've been a VIP in my entire life. And then go to the tram area to meet our guide. Now, let me tell you one thing. Houston in July is hot and humid and the NASA tram cars are open jobbies without fans or air conditioning. We VIPs, however, got our own van, complete with air conditioning, a fact we were all extremely grateful for. We were all remarking how wonderful it was to just walk past all the tourists, giving us very dirty looks, I might add, as we skipped the long line entirely. Those dirty looks, I think, turned into telepathic death threats as we climbed into our van and waved to the little people. You know that wave the famous folks do where they move their hand as little as possible? After lunch, we piled back into our nice air-conditioned chariot and made our way to the big tank, also known as the Sunny Carter Training Facility Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory. It's not actually located on the NASA campus. NASA got a really good deal on land outside campus, so they built it there. I believe aircraft were manufactured on site before. Any of you see that movie Armageddon with Bruce Willis? Yep, that tank. Armageddon was actually filmed in that tank. I think it was the first movie ever to do so, but I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. 
Our tour guide had a funny story about Bruce Willis during the filming. They have an observation platform with windows overlooking the tank and TV monitors with sound hooked up so they can, you know, hear and see what's going on under the water. Now, while they were filming, they had Bruce on the system they actually used to talk to the astronauts and vice versa for authenticity, I believe. Anyway, he was doing this scene and cussing up a storm. Unknown to them, a school group of little elementary school students was set to tour, and in they walk. Some little children learned their first swear words from Bruce Willis that day. They had to make a phone call or some such to tell him the kids were there and to ask him to clean up his language a bit. Anyway, back to the tank and tour. I believe our guide said it's the biggest swimming pool in the world and is kept at a temperature of 80 degrees Fahrenheit for the benefit of the drivers who go down in there with the astronauts for safety purposes. It's 40 feet deep, and I forget exactly how long, but it's long enough for an almost complete model of the space station full size to be down in it. The only part they left out was the part the Russians work on. They have that part in their tank in Russia, and if the U.S. astronauts really need to work on it, they sort of just fly over there. I know there is a full model of the station there because I saw it along with actual astronauts working on it. Really cool. They had two teams of astronauts working in there from the next two missions to go up. Uh, one in the uh, beginning of October is Constellation, and I forget the exact name of the astronauts or the second mission or when it goes up. Sorry, folks. They just sort of threw so much information at us. It's amazing. I remember as much as I do. Both missions are set to work on the space station to, you know, repair things, add modules, that sort of thing. Incidentally, for all you Star Trek fans, the Constellation mission patch was designed by a Star Trek scene designer with the input of the astronauts and looks really neat. Believe me, I want one. I had my little camera there and actually filmed about 12 minutes or so of the groups working. They were actually in spacesuits. Not the ones they would wear on their missions, but old retired suits that had been on space on other missions. Complete suits with backpacks, fishbowl helmets, gloves, and everything. It was really neat to see and hear. It was just coincidence that they were working there when we got there. It doesn't always happen. We sat watching for a good, you know, 30, 40 minutes or so, and looking at the different TV monitors and listening into the sound. They were running simulations of different duties they'll have to perform EVA on the station when they go up. They walked and talked through it all, and we got to listen. You know, there was even people, you know, playing the role of mission control and everything, and the astronauts talking back, walking through it all, you know, problems, like just like they would have done, or will do, when they go up. Each of the astronauts actually had cheat sheet cards on their wrists to help them remember what to do. I don't know how they were able to do much of anything, since they had three layers of gloves on and couldn't have felt anything. We got even luckier since, while we were there, one of the groups finished and was actually brought up out of the water on the lift. It took a while before they let them out of their suits because they had to depressurize or they'd get the bends. Yes, the tank is that deep. <laughs> they each had a group of people there to help them out of their suits, and believe me, they needed them with gloves that made their fingers that big. They couldn't have gotten out by themselves. The helmet and gloves came off first. Next, they took off the hood, covering their heads with all the sensors. But in order to get out of the main suit, they had to undo the fastenings that attached the legs to the chest part and then do a wiggle down through, pulling their heads and arms through, and then back out so they could stand up again. That's when we actually got mooned by an astronaut. I kid you not. He bent over with his bum facing us at the window and wiggled his tush in order to get it out of the pants part. Then he sat down and others helped him pull the rest of the pants part off. Underneath the spacesuits, they have these white long john things that, you know, life sensors and potty bags and tubes and everything. They work in six-hour shifts underwater, so they gotta go, 
they gotta go. The suit takes care of that part. They were both really sweaty, and after he had sat down for a bit, the one who mooned us got up and did a bit of a jig in front of the pool. It was then that I really saw all the air hoses and things arrayed around his back, waist, arms, and going down his legs. It was a bit afterwards that we had to leave and move on with the tour. Believe me, we sort of wanted to stay longer. It was probably one of the most cool places. The most time we actually saw actual astronauts doing, you know, what they actually do. The next stop we made after driving back to the main campus was the place most people want to see when they take the tour. Mission Control. Two words says it all. Well, actually, Mission Controls, since we saw three. Now, I'm not talking models. I'm talking the real deal with real people working in them while we were watching. The one we saw first was at around 2 p.m. was the Mission Control for the shuttle missions. We got to sit in that area with the seats looking through the glass wall onto the workers below. There were huge screens showing a map of the world and data, and each station has it its own name with its worker and computer screens and such. While we were there, they were actually conducting a simulation since there are no active shuttle missions up right now. The next one is the Constellation at the beginning of October. And that's uh, Constellation, and it's going to go work on the space station. One of the vet ground control men came and told us exactly what each and every position did. Some of the stations were flight director, Capcom. Uh, Capcom always has an astronaut manning it by tradition because he can speak astronaut speak and translate the technobabble of the others into orders that the astronauts can follow easily. There's also ADCO, Falcon, ECLSS, EVA, Atlas, Thor, Ops Planner, BME, Surgeon, Topo, Ground Control, and others. Uh, he actually was a surprise to the guide, too, since usually they don't come along and talk to the others. Uh, we actually were really lucky. Usually, you know, they don't have people coming out of the big tank, and usually you don't have ground control coming to talk to you, so good time to take the tour! Yay! Uh, point of note to anyone really interested in keeping track of the huge amounts of info sent your way on these tours, bring a video camera with lots of memory and extra batteries galore. You'll want to record every little minute of it. Um, also, on the walls of Mission Control are all the little mission patches of the little different missions controlled from there. That was sort of a standard. That's something I saw in all three um, shuttle, station, and another one I'll talk about later, saving it as a surprise. The next stop on our little tour was the mission control for the space station. There were the people at their stations, the big screen with pictures of the inside of the station, uh, and many of the same stations as at the mission control, you know, for the space shuttle. But these were... You know, not simulations. This was the actual people running the station right at the same time. It was an actual live mission. But um, some of the other cool things that were around, you know, besides like the mission patches on the wall, like, are everywhere, was that each person at their station sort of had little interesting thingamabobs and all over the place, you know, to liven it up. And also, there was a chess set in there set up. Uh, pretty much the astronauts and the mission control people have a running game going. So astronauts make a move, mission control people make a move. So, you know, kind of fun. They're playing chess when one is up in space and one is down in Houston. So kind of cool. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to do anything cool like see actual astronauts talking or the actual game because, unfortunately, there wasn't a live feed going on at the time. So pretty much, you know, just saw pictures. The screen was pretty dead. Uh, when we were there, there was a supposed to be a live feed starting in a half an hour, but unfortunately, we had to leave before it started. So I was like, darn it, I'm going to have to go back and take that tour again, and maybe this time the station will actually have a live feed going. 
Oh, well. Next time. The third stop in that certain building was probably the one that had the deepest personal impact on me. And I'm not just talking, you know, cool factor, though that certainly was there. I'm talking, you know, more of an emotional, heavy impact. Because it was Apollo. We went to the actual Apollo mission control room. And we didn't sit in a glassed-off area like with the other two. We had the run of the room, and we could walk past and actually touch and even sit at the desks and consoles and look up at the narrow, dark screens where so much of our history had taken place. I mean, not just history for the U.S., but, I mean, history for the world. I mean, I sat in Gene Kranz's chair at the flight director station, and it was absolutely incredible. I mean, you know who he was. He was the flight director during Apollo 13 as well as a quite a few other missions. And it's really hard to describe the feeling of actually being there, sitting where someone had sat. Well, they watched the race to the moon and Neil Armstrong sitting foot on it after so much effort. And then, you know, even later on, the tragedy of Apollo 13 bringing those guys home and then the Challenger explosion. Challenger was controlled from there, too. Um, it was just amazing, absolutely amazing, you know, almost, you almost could feel the ghosts of these guys working at their stations, astronauts going through, I mean, just so much happened. It was incredible, really something, you know, that alone, take, you know, take away, you know, everything else we saw, and we saw a lot. I mean, the big tank was cool. But going to see Mission Control Apollo was absolutely awesome. And it's something, personally, I will never, ever forget. It would be impossible. And it was almost, really was impossible atop. So much history and drama packed into one little room. It's not a huge room. It's rather modest, really. There's all the consoles, a flag that was once on the moon, the screens, the mission patches, the Challenger mission patch done much larger, as well as uh, one for Apollo um, 11. And one thing that I think got to me the most, it was something that the Apollo 13 folks gave the guys who brought them back home. It was a mirror attached to a plaque that read, This mirror flown on the Aquarius LM-7 to the moon, April 11th through the 17th, 1970. Returned by a grateful Apollo 13 to, quote, reflect the image, end quote, of the people in mission control who got us back. It was signed, James Lovell, John Swigert, and Fred Hayes. It's amazing to me that we made it to the moon at all, let alone got those three men home safely. Did you know that they had less computing power at their disposal than we have in a calculator? Those screens at the councils weren't even the actual computers used. They're just monitors that were linked to the huge computers in another room. They had to have cartridges in mission control and up with the astronauts that had different segments of the mission loaded on them, which had to be changed out as the missions went on simply because they didn't have enough memory to hold everything. It's just mind-blowing. And I was in the room where it all happened, restored and now a national historic landmark. It was deeply moving and quite humbling. Look at what we were able to accomplish back then by working together with so little just imagine what we could do if we put the same amount of energy and effort with the technology we have today. The next stop was Building 9, where astronaut training occurs. It's also where the robotics department is, including a robot with a head that I swear looks just like Boba Fett's helmet. I think they're developing it along with a spider robot, 
uh, to go to the moon. And the spider robot, it really does have a ton of legs. I don't know how they have the computer programming to get it all coordinated so that the thing actually walks. It does walk, by the way. Uh, there also were full-size modules um, from the space station. Uh, the ones I saw were Kibo, Logistics, Harmony, and I think one other. And there was also a full-size model of a, the shuttle and uh, the aft, aft shroud door trainer of the Hubble telescope. Uh, one neat thing they also had was a full-size prototype model of the re-entry vehicle for Orion, you know, the one with the heat shield and everything. And that the Orion is the new project they're developing to go to the moon again and eventually Mars. And they plan on using mo the moon as a staging area to test out all sorts of new technology and, you know, sort of as a practice run to actually get men to Mars. And I believe they said that the date for the Mars was, you know, 2030, somewhere around there. So actually, you know, in our lifetime, men on Mars, very cool. Uh, next 20, 30 years, NASA tours are going to start really getting interesting. Uh, something else they had there was something that's going to go up to the actual space station. I mean, not a model, but the actual, actual thing was a little cupola, cupola observation platform. It's pretty much just going to stick out at the top of the space station and has lots of windows and, you know, you can look out and peer around the astronauts and everything and they can do experiments up there. After Building 9, we went to visit the huge vacuum chamber. And I mean huge. The door alone weighed 40 tons. I had my picture taken in front of it, and I am this tiny little dot on the floor in front of the door. The door must be close to 50 feet in diameter. They actually plan on making this thing even bigger. They're in the process of creating the telescope that is going to replace the Hubble way out farther than any man can go. I forget exactly how far, but you can probably find out at NASA.gov. We're going to be able to get so many fantastic pictures. I'm sure most of you have seen um, pictures at the NASA website of what Hubble takes up. If you haven't, go look. They're fantastic. Absolutely gorgeous. These pictures are coming from this new telescope they're developing are going to be many, many or orders of magnitude better. I mean, we're going to learn things from this telescope about this, the universe and the galaxy that we can't even now imagine. It is really, really neat. Speaking on the development of new tech, a lot of people sometimes say, why in the heck are we spending so much money on the space program when we have, you know, so many problems at home with starving and housing and all that? And one of the big things that people really don't realize is for every dollar we develop and invest in NASA in space tech, we get back eight because a lot of the stuff NASA develops actually goes back to inter-society. I mean, we wouldn't have cell phones. We wouldn't have laptop computers. We wouldn't have a lot of the technology that we take for granted every day if we didn't have the space program. And that's a lot of money. So, you know, we'd actually lose a heck of a lot more money if we didn't have the space program. So just keep that in mind. If people start grumbling about all the money we put in the space program, Tell them that fact. Okay, uh, moving on. Ba oh, the vacuum chamber. Okay, they're making it bigger. Um, the What they're going to be doing is that the they use the vacuum chamber to create a vacuum, obviously. And then they test it in at the extremes of temperature found in space to see how the components fare. I mean, scientific types will know that, you know, you have 
in the sunlight, you have extreme high temperatures. Out of the sunlight, you have extreme lows. So pretty much whatever goes up into outer space has to be able to handle both. So that's what they do in there. Uh, the new telescope is going to be way too big to fit into that room, no matter how huge it is. And it is huge, by the way. Even though we didn't get to go inside, we got to peer inside. And they're going to dig down another two stories into the bedrock under the chamber to make it bigger. Then the telescope will fit. <laughs> also, the uh, chamber itself is also a National Historic Landmark, just like the Apollo Mission Control and the Saturn V. The Saturn V was the next and last stop on the tour. The Saturn V they have in Houston is the most complete one in existence. It was created for a moon mission that never happened because the Apollo program was canceled. It lay decaying for quite a while until a building was built around it and was restored. Uh, birds and animals were actually building their nests inside of it before then. Um, it's all there to see except for the lem itself, which they said is often a museum somewhere else in the country. Um, I thought the vacuum chamber was big. I know the big tank was huge, but the Saturn V rocket is colossal. They had it on its side, and it is completely astounding how huge it is. Uh, there, every part was there except for the limb. I mean, the rocket boosters uh, with the main tank, and then the other boosters that would push them into orbit, and finally the part that would take them to the moon, and then even the reentry module. It was all connected where um, with like the, the parts broken apart enough so that you could see like the end where each one begins, but it was all lined up in order. It was just none of them were connected so you could see all the bits and bobs and doodads. It's wow. So worth seeing. Oh, and that, by the way, you don't have to take the level nine tour on, but you know, we got there before the little peons got there. The Saturn V was our last stop before heading back to building one. The tour really was fantastic, and I pretty much filled up the memory card on my camera, uh, taking pictures and video. I fully intend on going back someday and taking the tour again, and I would recommend it to anyone who ever goes to NASA. A few things to remember, though, just for, you know, people who were interested in taking it. Uh, the first thing is to book in advance. There are only 12 seats a day, so when you buy your plane ticket and hotel rooms, make sure you buy your Level 9 VIP tour tickets. The second thing is that you have to be over 14 in order to go on the tour. The third thing is bring a video camera uh, and a digital camera complete with plenty of memory and extra batteries. Bring what you think you might need and then double it. You will want to take plenty of pictures and video would be the best to record the sheer volume of information they throw at you as well as making a great family video to add to your home library. Remember, you'll be, you'd be seeing things that 99% of the people who visit NASA never get to see because it's not on the regular tour. The only thing that we saw that was actually on the regular tour was the Saturn V, and that was at the very end. Well, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed my little talk about my visit to NASA. Take care, all, and have fun if you ever go there. Well, thanks for that, Elaine. And perhaps I should remind everyone that you can download the individual segments of the Jogcast on the website at www.jogcast.net. And that's where you can also send us your feedback. And we do obviously like to have that feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Jogcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jogcast. And you can even join the Jogcast group on Facebook and become one of our friends where you can poke us or write on our wall. 
So, with that, that brings us to the end of another show. So it just leaves me to say thanks to Ian Morrison, to Tim O'Brien, and to Elaine Barrett, and of course to all of you for continuing to download us. So we'll be back at the start of September with our normal show and the first video episode. So until then, goodbye. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>